Hello, and welcome to another edition of Eye Critical Care. I'm your host, Dr. Kyle Enfield, and today I'm joined by Dr. Travis Moss, a fellow of the Division of Cardiology at the University of Virginia, and Dr. Random Mormon, professor in the Division of Cardiology at the University of Virginia. Today's podcast is unique as we'll be discussing a paper I am a co-author on entitled New Onset Atrial Fibrillation in the Critically Ill, which was published in the May edition of Critical Care Medicine 2017. Before we begin, I will disclose that I have no conflicts of interest. Travis, Randall, could you please share any disclosures you have? I have no conflicts of interest to disclose. I have a conflict of interest. My wife and I are officers in a University of Virginia startup called Advanced Medical Predictive Devices, Diagnostics, and Displays that has licensed some of the technologies discussed in this paper. Thank you both. Travis, could you tell us a little bit about what prompted your interest in the area of predictive analytics monitoring? Sure. So I'll try and and be succinct, but after college, my first internship that summer was with Priceline Webhouse Club, which was just getting started uh, year 2000. I got my first taste of big data, lots of databases, and got to learn a bit about database queries. And then I started medical school. I met uh, Dr. Mormon and did research with his group that summer and looked at several hundred 24-hour continuous ECG Holter recordings and learned a lot about uh, how to, to visually detect atrial fibrillation by looking at the, the waveform tracing. And then came back and did another project later in medical school and stuck with it. And that kind of led to coming back for a fellowship and doing research in this, this area. And Dr. Mormon, what about you? What got you interested in predictive analytic monitoring? Well, my interest in this dates back to 20 years ago when I got interested in the problem of sepsis in premature infants. It struck me and the people that I was working with that there ought to be premonitory signals in the continuous monitoring that might allow earlier diagnosis and therefore earlier therapy. So we undertook at the time to collect a lot of EKG data and analyze it. And sure enough, there was an obvious signature of illness in the heart rate patterns. There was reduced variability and there were decelerations, exactly the same kind of pattern that you associate with fetal distress, though not previously mentioned in the neonatal literature. In any event, we developed mathematical techniques to detect that phenomenon, mapped those results to clinical phenomena, and went ahead to develop a bedside monitor that reported to clinicians in real time the risk of imminent diagnosis of clinical sepsis. The final piece of that puzzle was a very large randomized clinical trial in which we showed that display of that monitor reduced mortality in the NICU by more than 20%. That's a very galvanizing result and has been highly motivational to myself and the people that I work with, and we have been seeking to extend this idea to the much larger hospital population in ICUs and on war. This particular problem of atrial fibrillation is of particular interest to me. My clinical practice involves a lot of patients with atrial fibrillation and was a natural place to go attack this large and largely unanswered question of atrial fibrillation in the ICU. So I think that's a great segue into asking what got you started, Travis, on this particular question in the population and, and how did you go about attacking the problem of atrial fibrillation in the critically ill population? Sure. So uh, Dr. Mormon and Dr. Lake, who's a mathematician uh, in the group, had tackled atrial fibrillation in the outpatient or ambulatory setting a few years ago by looking at these Holter monitors and had devised a heart rate entropy metric called the coefficient of sample entropy that was a great way to detect atrial fibrillation based on the variability or entropy of the heart rate signal. 
when I came back for fellowship, we were just starting to look at inpatient cohort populations for a variety of uh, problems. One of those projects was looking at atrial fibrillation and its detection in inpatient cohort where the uh, ECG recording is often confounded by noise and artifact, which we don't always see in the inventory setting. And we also were looking at places where there's a lot of data where the level and frequency of monitoring is, is more intense, and that tends to be in the ICUs where patients have critical illness. And that's also where AFib is also the most common in, in the hospital. And what were some of the challenges you faced when you started doing this project as far as getting the data into uh, a usable form and or finding the right data to answer some of the questions, particularly that question of is this pre-existing atrial fibrillation or is this really new onset atrial fibrillation? So we had a variety of data sources that we used. We use an electronic medical record that archives all the clinician notes, the laboratory values, the vital signs, as well as ECG reports. And so from, from that, we're able to detect diagnosis codes. We're able to query who had atrial fibrillation or atrial flutter from previous uh, hospital or clinic encounters, as well as who had 12 ECG reports that had that as the diagnosis most of which are overread by cardiologists. And so that informed kind of who was at risk for atrial fibrillation, either as a recurrence or as new onset in our population. And then the other major data sources, the continuous ECG monitoring, that's a infrastructure that has been in place for a while um, and is fairly unique in the sense that we not only display it like every other hospital does, but we are one of the few places that archives that data the raw waveforms, as well as aggregated measures at uh, frequent intervals. And we run a, a number of metrics that we calculate from that uh, data set, and that equates to observations that can be recorded as frequently as we want. For this purposes of this paper, we did it every 15-minute increments. So you mentioned... Um the ECGs that are routinely captured in the, the medical intensive care unit and the fact that these monitors have predictive algorithms for detecting atrial fibrillation. How does your method differ from that? And maybe you could explain a little bit about what this coefficient of entropy is really measuring. Sure. So there's a, a variety of vendors that provide this service and this technology to hospitals for heart rate monitoring and heart rhythm detection. I think, in general, my impression is that they do very well in terms of atrial fibrillation detection. The problem from a research standpoint is that that data is not available to researchers, by and large, and when it is, it just comes at a hefty fee and it's difficult to get at. And as the methods or algorithms behind it haven't been published or validated in, in, in that sense. So that, I think, is, is one of the, the reasons that we developed our own methodology. Another methodology, as I mentioned before, is that these patients have a lot of other things going on. There's other monitoring systems at, at play. There's frequently ventilators that patients are on. There's a lot of movement with various procedures that happen. And so these patients don't have a, necessarily always a clean signal in terms of the, the baseline or waveform. And so looking at another way of detecting atrial fibrillation based on the, the RR or the intervals between the heartbeats is uh, we thought would be useful in this particular context. So, so what is it that you found then after doing this project? What were the significant findings? I think the, the major findings were that atrial fibrillation is very common. We detected it in about 8% of all ICU admissions. 
as new onset, as it often goes unrecognized, as many as four out of five patients who has new onset atrial fibrillation is subclinical, meaning that it's not documented by a diagnosis code or confirmed by a 1280 CG report. And we also found that it may not be as uh, clinically relevant as the atrial fibrillation that is recognized by clinicians. And the question is, what burden or level of atrial fibrillation uh, becomes clinically important? Uh, I think for us, the results of our study led to more questions than, than answers in, in some sense, in the sense that new onset atrial fibrillation, when it's clinically recognized, certainly has high impact in poor prognosis for length of stay and hospital mortality, whereas the subclinical atrial fibrillation may be more of a marker of illness severity, much like other markers of illness severity, which I think may be of use in and of itself to clinicians. But I think we have to think about atrial fibrillation in the critically ill in a different way than we've thought about it in outpatients. And, and from your observations at this point, and, and I'd love to hear Dr. Mormon's thought as well, how are you now thinking about atrial fibrillation in the ICU population, recognizing that your paper didn't address that? But from this paper, how are you approaching it when you do consults in the ICU? Well, one of the things we found is that in follow-up, the only category of atrial fibrillation that had any impact on uh, mortality was prior atrial fibrillation. So even the new onset clinical atrial fibrillation didn't seem to have an impact on mortality over the, the follow-up that we had over a couple, two, two to three years. Certainly the um, incidence of stroke is very low. And so we, might, we were probably underpowered to detect that, but I think this opens up the opportunity to do more research to look at these patients need to have ongoing monitoring after hospitalization before we make decisions about anticoagulation. I think it, it begs the question of how aggressive we need to be at, at treating atrial fibrillation if, it's, if the rates are reasonably well controlled and they're not having an impact on the hemodynamics. And so I think for me, it makes me pause and think a little bit more carefully about each patient I see with atrial fibrillation. Randall, what about you? I approached this study from the beginning as a consultant cardiologist and having had the experience of being called to see very severely ill patients in the ICU who now had atrial fibrillation for whom it was a significant clinical problem. And my hypothesis entering this was that even subclinical atrial fibrillation would have negative impact on the course of hospital patients. And Kyle, you and I both remember some heated discussions about this in which I'll just put words in your mouth, your point of view, an ICU doctor, that there was atrial fibrillation happening in the ICU that was unlikely to have negative impact. Well, I was surprised to find that low levels of atrial fibrillation um, do not have negative impact. And I agree with Travis that all of this now has to be taken in, in better context of the individual patient. Which brings us to the editorial that accompanied this paper, which really asked the question, are we overdiagnosing something and what does that mean? And do, do these findings lead to overdiagnosis? And I wanted to get your thoughts, Travis, on what you think the implications of these findings would be and how they could be applied more, more broadly. And then what next steps should be taken to avoid a situation where we are overdiagnosing people with atrial fibrillation and how to approach the next study? Yeah, I think it was a great editorial, and it points out some of the concerns, I think, of uh, a broader readership, which is that with the diagnosis of atrial, fibr atrial fibrillation often comes additional diagnostic testing and therapeutic decisions, including medications that have 
risks. We tend to put people on blood thinners, and so there's a risk of bleeding. Uh, and so I think to respond to that, if you think that atrial fibrillation should be treated uniformly, and it's one <coughs> disease process that doesn't have a lot of variability in terms of its impact and the context in which it occurs, I think, yeah, there is a possibility for overtreatment and perhaps harm. I think, on the other hand, we're only providing additional information, and I think it provides us opportunities to uh, further risk stratify patients in ways such that we can refine or tailor our approach based on the context in which atrial fibrillation occurs, so that maybe this gives us the opportunity to say, no, we don't need to anticoagulate all these patients that we detect atrial fibrillation during the critical illness, and we can wait uh, a period and re-monitor them to make that decision. And so in some sense, I think we could perhaps provide greater quality and patient safety by avoiding some of the treatments that, that go with atrial fibrillation. When you think about the technique used to detect atrial fibrillation in this population, you talked about multiple data streams that sort of went into the decision-making pro- process. Is this a technology or a technique that could actually be applied now to patients in our ICUs, or is this uh, something that is coming down the road? For a future state? It's, it's technology that we've developed and have implemented in, in our hospital with our, our system, but we've also been able to take that same system and implement the same sort of methodologies and algorithms in, in other hospitals with similar infrastructures. Is it something that can be done on the monitors that we have in place, or does it require a different computer processing system? Well, it, it, li- it lives off of the, the network on which the, the monitors reside. It's not, it doesn't necessarily require to integrate with the, the vendors necessarily, that's my understanding. Certainly there are, asp- there are parts of the algorithm that are very efficient indeed, and we've been able to effectively diagnose atrial fibrillation at very rapid rates in defibrillator records you know, using as few as 12 beats and effectively discriminated from ventricular tachyarrhythmias. The, the algorithm that's used in this paper has other elements in it that allow it to exclude ectopic beats, which has been an Achilles heel of many AF detection algorithms. So for me, a very important aspect of this paper is that there's a clinical distinction between the group of patients that had atrial fibrillation that was not recognized by notes in the chart or by 12 lead EKGs and those for whom it was recognized clinically. That's a very mysterious process by which our clinicians were able to identify patients with atrial fibrillation that went on to have poorer outcomes. I think that an important next step in the research process would be an individually randomized trial in which half the patients have atrial fibrillation detected automatically using the methods we describe and have that diagnosis relayed in real time to the clinician's caring for them. This would allow the clinicians to exercise their judgment into therapies or other diagnostic measures for that patient with that episode of atrial fibrillation and would probably lay to rest the issue of whether we should be terribly concerned about this. Travis, any final thoughts you'd like to share? No, I just think that this is an area that's ripe for research. The current AHA ACC clinical guidelines has a paragraph on atrial fibrillation that occurs in the setting of acute non-cardiovascular illness with one reference and no recommendations 
other than to extrapolate from what we know about the outpatient population and, and some from the post-cardiothoracic surgery cohorts that have been studied. Well, I want to thank you guys for taking time out of your busy schedules to, to join us and, and help elaborate on uh, what I think is a really exciting area of um, development, which is uh, how we can take big data sources that we're generating every day and start thinking about uh, problems that we also address every day with maybe not the um, deep knowledge that has been found in other areas like outpatient atrial fibrillation. And with that, we will conclude this edition of Eye Critical Care. Please check out our website, www.sccm.org slash care for more information. For the Eye Critical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Kyle Enfield. Join or renew your membership with SCCM, the only multi-professional society dedicated exclusively to the advancement of critical care. Speak with a customer service representative or visit www.sccm.org slash membership for more information. Kyle Enfield, MD, is an Associate Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Virginia. He received his undergraduate degree from the University of Oklahoma. He received his joint medical and master's degrees in epidemiology at the University of Oklahoma Health Science Center and went on to complete his residency and fellowship at the University of Virginia. In July of 2013, Dr. Enfield was appointed as the medical director of the Medical Intensive Care Unit at the University of Virginia. From 2009 through July 2016, he was the assistant hospital epidemiologist there, and he remains the co-medical director of the Special Pathogens Unit. Dr. Enfield's clinical interests are in critical care medicine and transport of critically ill patients. His academic interests are the epidemiology and prevention of healthcare-associated conditions, including multidrug-resistant organisms acquisition and healthcare-associated infections. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.